in the la- when I was a youth pastor in the last millennium, this is true now, odd to say, I used to do a, a game called What Would You Do for a Buck? And, uh, you know, and because of inflation, we have to make it, what would you do for two bucks? Uh, but I'm going to do something we don't normally do. We used to do this more often. Uh, but I'm going to ask for, don't volunteer yet, three volunteers, one from grade school, one from middle school, and one from high school, if I can get it, all who have played Jenga in the past. Can I get a grade school volunteer? Henry. Can I get a middle school volunteer? Oh, boy. I, I should have, so I, Carson, I saw your hand first. I'm sorry. And can I get a high school volunteer? It's going to be hard, I know. High school like, high school volunteer? She's not volunteer. You cannot volunteer somebody else, even if you're the mom. Okay. She doesn't want to come up. <laughs> All right, can I get another middle school volunteer? Okay, you come up here. All right, can you, come on up. And um, you got to be ready. Yeah, you got to get the jacket off. Okay, can you tell me your name? Caleb. So we got Henry, Carson, and Caleb. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just go in that order, okay? Henry, Carson, and Caleb. So what you do with Jenga, it's pretty easy. I got $2 here, and there's three kids. So the one who doesn't knock it over, so the ones who don't knock it over get these $2, one each, okay? So if you knock it over, you do not get one of these dollars. I'm sorry. But the odds are pretty good, okay? The way we do Jenga is you pull out one piece and put it on the top. I've already got it going, uh, which I, means I made it a little less stable, but that is just the way it is. So, Henry, you're going to go first. Uh, hold on, though. One thing, you're going to have to the count of ten. I'm going to count to ten. And you have to have it done before ten, or I will knock, the ta- knock it over by bumping the table, okay? You good? Everybody got that? Would I really do that? I was a youth pastor for a long time. It's quite possible. Are you ready? Are you ready? One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Oh, put it, hold on. Put it back on. Yeah, there you go. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. That's good. Not done yet. Let me see. I didn't tell you I wasn't going to touch it. This is my game, right? So I can do it with my rules. Okay. Ready? Are you ready, Henry? Okay, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Whoo. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, okay. All right, you can't touch it with your other hand, okay? All right? I think you know that, but I, maybe I didn't articulate all the rules. Okay. Now you say that's not fair, right? This is, yes, right? Yeah, right? Okay, yeah, it's, you're right. It's not fair. Here we go. Caleb, one, two, three, four, five. All right. Ready? You ready? Hold on. I didn't say go yet. You ready? Oh, uh, wait. You're, you're scoping it out. Tough. One, two, three, four, five. Oh! Okay, okay. All right. Woo. Okay, good work. So, Caleb, don't, don't go anywhere yet. Dollar and dollar for you. Good work, guys. So, I did tell you that the 
person who knocked over wouldn't get one of those two dollars, but I have another dollar for you, okay? So, good work, guys. Will it... Good job at being willing to come up here when you didn't quite know what was happening. Okay. I use that illustration because in some ways, I, I maybe could have said this before, but uh, if these things, if these blocks here are the stuff of life, you got one person doing one thing, another person doing another thing, another person doing another thing. Henry, at the last there, took one block out, rearranged it in his life, put it back in, and it fell over. He had done that before, but it didn't. Eventually, the stuff does come crashing down on us, right? Like, it's just stuff just gets overwhelming, and we find ourselves in a situation of distress where stuff just comes crashing down. And sometimes there's no rhythm or rhyme to it. Sometimes it doesn't seem fair, right? They came up here, they knew they were going to do Jenga, but they didn't know I was going to count. Well, somebody changed the rules, right? I didn't count the same pace for everybody, right? They had different things, different pressures put upon them than each other. Now, while Henry did knock it over with his last one, Caleb and Carson also contributed to it, right, by destabilizing it. They'd done something before he got there that he didn't ask them to do, that he would probably would have wished he didn't do it. And then somebody from outside, myself, came and said, I should think I'll turn it. In fact, I started it by making it weak. They inherited a very weak situation that was very uh, precarious to start with. The stuff comes into our life sometimes because of what we do, sometimes because of the things that we inherit. They didn't choose it. They volunteered. Um, but really, I was going to choose one of them anyway. Which one? They don't know. And sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to this. Sometimes it just happens to be where you are. You can do something. One person can do a dumb thing and no consequence whatsoever. Another person can do a dumb thing and lots of consequence. Years ago, I had a friend who was a pastor of a large church in Florida. And uh, his youth pastor was a former military guy, kind of a high-strung guy, good dude, good youth pastor, and was driving on the interstate in Florida. And... uh, the car behind him was driving, he thought, too aggressively, too close to him, pushing him, a little bit of road rage going on. I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm just telling you what he did. And the guy came up beside him, and his machismo, not, you, know, you know this is not going to go well. And he reaches in his glove compartment and takes out the gun that he has, license carry and waves it at the person. That person reached in his pocket and pulled out his badge and waved it at him. A state trooper. He ends up getting arrested, loses his job. Now, some of you could do that. I don't want to know if you have. Some of you could do that, and what happens if that's on a Sunday is Monday morning you go back to work. This guy happened on a Sunday, and on Monday he had no job, right? He did a stupid thing that some of us could do and not pay the same consequences. Uh, The distress comes into our life sometimes because we do it. But sometimes we do something somebody else does or somebody else does something we do and there's completely different consequences and it seems to have no reason or rhyme, but it's real distress. The passage we're looking at today is talking about God's people in distress and what God does with his people in distress. As we've been moving through this Old Testament passage, we've said we want to keep two things in mind, the storyline and the author, right? The story, not Moses, but God. The storyline what story of grace are, is this is happening here? Why? Because you, if you are in Christ, are in this same story that we see right here in Exodus. 
It's just a little bit later in the story. But that's our family, guys. This is the story that we're in. And the author, God, is the same, according to Hebrews 13, yesterday, today, and forever. So this is the God we have dealings with in this same story. So it behooves us to know his ways. And what we see here is what are his ways when his people are in distress? It's this. The Lord meets his people in their distress with his rescuing presence. That's the nature of our God then, now, tomorrow. So we can personalize it and say the Lord meets us in our distress with his rescuing presence. And I don't want to, for a minute, pretend like there's going to be a bow on the, on the end of this thing, like wrapped up nice and tidy. Because distress in life, you know, often makes no sense. And while we are guaranteed like the next chapter of life, distress is removed. We do not find that necessarily in this chapter. But what we do find, I do want to say this as a promise, what we do find is a God who makes himself available to us with his presence, which uh, is a rescuing presence, one that it brings us comfort in the moment and hope in the future, a rescuing presence. So the story to this point where we've been going through the Old Testament, when God begins to call a people, he calls them through Abraham and makes promises to Abraham and his descendants that he would be a blessing to the nations, most notably because Jesus would come from that line and through Christ, salvation would come to the world. And he makes Abraham a promise. He'll give you your own land, which, you know, in the Old Testament is Israel, but we know, oh, that was a hyperlink or a placeholder for the whole earth. It was a foreshadowing of everything. One day when Christ returns and the whole earth is his, the whole earth is the promised land. That's what they were actually waiting for. That promise goes on to Isaac and it goes on to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of them Joseph, and we saw this last week through this convoluted family, very broken family relationships. Joseph ends up second in command of Egypt because he was sold into slavery by his brothers, but this is a long, bad story. Uh, and, there's a, and he's second in command because he predicts this famine that's going to happen. It happens, and because the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, believed him, they had stored up all this grain, and Egypt did not get plunged into uh, death when the famine came. But this famine was all throughout the ancient Near East, and other nations began to come to Egypt for grain, and they would sell grain to them. And in the process, uh, Joseph invited all of his family from Canaan to Egypt. So they end up in Egypt. His dad, uh, his mom had passed by then, his 11 brothers. And so 70 people in all, the households, 70 people. But then time goes on. And that group of people known as the Israelites, descendants of Israel or Jacob, Jacob is named Israel, become flourishing and they become strong. And there is hostility in Egypt against this group of people, the Israelites. And that's where our story picks up. In your insert, I put uh, Exodus 1. And so we're actually going to start in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the land of Israel, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, 
And the more they spread abroad, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So 100 years goes by, and then 200 and 300, and sometime in the middle of that 300 year, that third century, a new king, a new pharaoh arises, and it says he did not know Joseph. Well, of course he didn't know Joseph because Joseph was dead. But what it really means is he no longer recognized the, the debt of gratitude Egypt should have had to Joseph. Right? Joseph was the one that kept Egypt from plunging into slavery. Joseph was the one who helped contribute to Egypt's world domination because they were able to sell their grain to desperate people and elevate their status in that whole region. But he no longer uh, appreciated Joseph or his descendants. And those descendants were flourishing, and as nat- you know, natural in sinful world, tribalism, a form of racism, prejudice, nationalism, they begin to dislike the Israelites. And the more they flourish, the more they dislike them. And so they, out of fear, they begin to institute harsh measures. Now, it wouldn't have been obvious right at first that they acted shrewdly to them. Them. That's in, we would talk about encroaching statism today, perhaps. Like the government is like pushing more and more on this people group. So over time, over a couple decades, they they work things out so there is oppression. And uh, the more they were oppressed, the more they flourished. And the more that made Egypt fear them because they were growing. And so eventually it became all out slavery. They lost their place in society. They became an enslaved people. So this was not like we, we, just, we don't like the Israelites. This is we don't want them to multiply. We don't want them to flourish. Uh, we want to lock them into a sort of generational servitude. We, we want them to lose their, their place as people. So they didn't ask for this, right? This was injustice done to them. Done to them. So if you're counting, it was injustice. It was harsh. It was long. And it was evil. That's what's going on here. So I don't know if you noticed here, there's the absence of a character in the first chapter, in the the first part of the first chapter. Every commentator points it out. That God is noticeably absent from what I just read. Which is strange given the history up to this point. There's an experiential absence of God. And I think this is actually indicative of a lot of our experience of distress. When distress first sets in in our life, whatever kind it is, what's natural to do is this. i got to figure this out. And it seems like God is absent. That's the experience of it. Now, it might well be because we're not looking sure. But it is a real experience, and I just want to, I just think it's helpful to name that and identify it as a reality when distress sets in. An often first experience is like, I guess I'm alone here. Now, we would never say that. Well, we might say that, but it's unlikely. We just function in that way. There's an experienced absence of God. Uh, and again, sometimes it's because we're not looking, but you know, sometimes I think, and, and God's people have said this, wise people for centuries, Sometimes 
God does hide himself from his people so that we will seek him because that is a good thing for us. God doesn't need us to seek him. He doesn't become more God if we seek him. We are built to be in relationship with him, so we need to seek him. And sometimes it is as if the Lord hides his face so that we will press in and seek him. And sometimes distress is the exact context where that happens. So you have this apparent absence of God and the presence of sin and brokenness cutting into our life. There's a lot of different kinds here we might talk about. This is what we would call unjust distress that they're experiencing. Unjust distress can come from, it's the, it comes from the sin of others against us. You know what that's like. And you have sinned against, I have sinned against others and created distress in their lives sometimes. This is unjust distress from the sin of the Egyptians against the Israelites. Scripture talks about that as individual actual sin. Scripture also talks about what we might call systemic sin or structural sin. So I didn't include it in here, but after this, Pharaoh, in order to stop the Hebrews from flourishing, makes a law that Egyptian midwives were to execute all Hebrew babies, male babies born. Once he writes that into law, it's a law. He doesn't even have to sustain it anymore. It is a, an existing structural evil that creates distress, right? There's all kinds of sin. It's uh, impersonal. So, and I know that, I don't want to be, you know, ticking people's buttons here, but like in our, the last 30 years in our culture, we've increasingly talked about structures of evil and structures of sin. And, you know, we, uh, I do think sometimes that's, that hand is overplayed. I want to, it is. But to say the response to that, to say there's no such thing as that, is to blind ourselves to actual evil. We have to acknowledge the Scripture talks about both of these types of evil, right? And it brings distress into people's lives. Now, we can argue about how much more, but it, it is a real thing. There are uh, there you, something called, you could call just distress. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had distress in your life caused by your own stupid decisions. I don't know, probably. I, probably ever, all of us have, right? It, maybe not even sin. It's like, shouldn't have, that was a bad decision. Um, and it creates distress. It's not less distress because you caused it. It's real distress. What about if you've sinned? Is that? Is it really called distress in Scripture if, if it's brought on by your own sin? Answer, it actually is. I put this passage in here on the bottom right, that God is near to the brokenhearted. It's from uh, Psalm 34. But if you trace that, song, that concept of brokenheartedness out in the Psalms, you get to Psalm 51, where David is repenting and brokenhearted for his own sin and saying the Lord is near to us in our sin. Right, into the distress caused in us and in other people by our own sin. Sometimes it's just distra- common distress. We're living in a broken world. Our bodies break down. They don't always work right. Our minds break down. They don't always work right. The stock mark, market fluctuates. We lose, our, these, we lose our jobs. These things happen. Some are born into chaotic families and you're way behind the eight ball and you don't even know it until you're 18 years old. You just think it's normal. 
That's distress, God. It's, just, it's living in a broken world distress. Um, and oftentimes, just sort of like the combo platter distress. Like a little bit of this, a little bit. It's hard to figure out, right? It was, you know, this, and you were sinned against, and then you sinned, and it's this structural thing, and your family's a mess, and all this kind of stuff. And I just wanted to say, it's, it's okay to recognize the distress in our life. In fact, we should. And um, sometimes it's just good to take time to do that and realize that everybody else in your life experiences distress as well. Everybody else does. Everybody experiences distress. It is common condition. Everybody experiences that world. Now, what's not common is that the people of God have a reality. And that is a God who offers to be with us in that distress. Look at Exodus 22. I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, many days, many years, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So what is the process, we might say, about, uh, of moving toward an awareness of God's rescuing presence? Two important things here. They groaned and they cried out. So to groan is like, it's, a, it's onomatopoeia in English. Groan. It's like, oh. You've all done that, right? Oh. It is a sound arising from pain and helplessness. The word probably most vibrantly used in the Old Testament is where God in judgment in Exodus 30 is judging Egypt. And he says, I will, it's metaphorical language, I will break both of Pharaoh's arms. And he will groan for relief. Um, he was going to break them by the invasion of the Babylonians. You don't need to worry about that. But the picture there is a person groaning with two broken arms. What can you do with two broken arms? Not much, I assume. I don't, I've never had a broken arm, but I think if you had two of them, it would be really bad. Like you, you can walk. I mean, I don't know what you can do. That's it. it, it groaning is an, is an awareness of our helplessness. It's like, okay, Lord, I can't. This is bigger than I am. And I get that this is hard. For us, we want to be independent, and we want to be strong, and we might say, oh, I'm not sure I've been helpless about anything, really helpless. Okay. Let me ask you, why do we keep returning to that same sin? Why? That same coveting, the same website, the same way of medicating pain, why do we do that? Because on our own, we are helpless against it. It is bigger than us, and it is stronger than us. And left to our own, we have two broken arms. Groaning is the appropriate response to something that's bigger than us, even if it's the distress of our own sin, maybe especially if it's the distress of our own sin. The Israelites were involved in something much bigger than them. The whole power of Egypt was against them. They groaned. They groaned. And the second, they cried out for help. They cried out for help. Now, I read years ago this psychological study that people of northern European descent have uh, more trouble than those of other descent of expressing their emotions. That may be variously true of you. I'm from, that's my own background, German and English. Um, and uh, you may experience that same thing, 
right? I can't really get out my emotions. I really can't sing very loud in church. I can't clap. I can't raise my hands. I will scream at the TV at a football game, but I cannot, you know, I can't express my emotions other places, right? So um, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Actually, I'm not. Guys, especially, if you can scream at the Colts, you can lift your voices in worship. Um, okay. Sorry, off soapbox. Um, so when, you, when we hear, like, um, cry out, we're like, come on, really? Cry out. This is an invitation. It's a depth invitation to gut honest, vocal engagement with God. Cry out. And I'll, it's definitely the first means of relating to God in distress. And I want to, th- I think from my own life, I would say in my life, it's the main means, the main avenue of that. Crying out. That phrase, cry out, is used in the Psalms over 50 times. Yeah? So about every third Psalm, somebody's crying out about something. Right, so just let me give you a smattering here. Psalm 5, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. Psalm 17, hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Psalm 18, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Uh, I, from his temple he heard my voice and my cry to hit, reach his ears. Psalm 27, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Psalm 28, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you. Psalm 30, to you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. Psalm 34, the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Psalm 40, I wait patiently for the Lord, and he inclined, leaned in, and heard my cry. And there's about 45 more. It is central to the way the people of God in the Old Testament worshipped and gave themselves to God. Um, so, I, am I asking, just for clarity, to consider that we ought to use our voices and lift them and act like Actually, literally cry out to God. Yes, exactly what I, this is calling us to do, right? Um, and like, well, that's a little bit exposing. That might actually be the, the, the why it's good, right? It's gut honest. It's raw. This is a God who gives himself completely to us. We can give ourselves completely to him. It's this invitation farther in, farther in. Um, so what this didn't say is, it's, so it's cry out. It's not, I, just go, I went through what I do in my own life. It's not work it out, not think it out, not figure it out, not tough it out, not shake it out, not exercise it out. You know, it's not medicate it out. It's cry out. Here's what I noticed also. This is, I saw this is actually from our own congregation. I'm gonna, it's not going to say who because it's a lot of us. Here's what we do when we're in distress. I've heard this so many times. Well, I don't have anything to complain about because some people else are, off, are a lot worse off than I am. You know, why should I? Uh, I shouldn't feel bad because look at this person's life. It's really bad. Okay. That's comparing it out, okay? <laughs> I'm going to feel com- better, better by comparing myself to another person who's in a worse position, and therefore I shouldn't feel distress. Okay. That is a, an absurd approach. If you think about the logic of that, there's only then one person in the world who can feel bad. Like the person who's worse, I don't know who that person is. I don't want to be that person, but it'd be really bad, right? And so like uh, just because we don't experience the same distress as somebody else doesn't mean it's not distress. 
I suppose the Lord could have come to the people in Israel who were in slavery in Egypt like, yeah, but there's this tribe in this place you've never heard of that's worse than you, so shut up, right? But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. This is a unique privilege of us as the people of God. And I just want to pause and say, like, it, it has to be true. In this room right now, there is distress. And it could be that we've tried a lot of the pathways. Work it out, tough it out, think it out, figure it out, medicate it out, exercise it out. Uh, can I plead with you to cry out to God? He invites us to this over and over and over and over. And if I had time, I'd do that 50 times just in the Psalms and over and over and over. And it's not, it's not hyperbole. It's not metaphor. It's lifting our voice and calling out to God. We might have to get alone while we do it. Maybe we can do that in a group of people. Maybe you can do that in your own dining room. Just warn your family first. But uh, it's a real invitation from a real God who really does meet us in distress with his rescuing presence. That's the first move. What's the second move? Look at this. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, remember, God was not present in the first part of that first chapter, and now what happens? God, 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 God. Like the, the a careful listener says, oh, the Scripture's communicating something here. God is really present now, and it's on the other side of their experience of groaning and crying out. This is, by the way, a, a big theological word on anthropomorphism, where God is displayed in human terms so we can understand him. Right? Um, so, it's not, so it's not, when it says God hears them, it's not like God's doing this. He's like, what, up in heaven? I mean, he's om omnipresent. He's everywhere. So it's not he's like he's going about his business and he's like, what is it? Like Horton hears a who, right? Like that, uh, that is not what this means. It's communicating God. In, he can't not hear everything, right? This is he's God. He's communicating God in personal terms. The Bible does all the time. When it says he remembered his covenant, right? It's not like God was going about his business and he's like, oh, yeah, they're crying out. Oh, you know, that reminds me. Abraham, I said, what did I say to him? Oh, yeah, I promised to bless him as make his descendants a blessing. That's not what remember means when it comes to God, like calling, re recalling some detail to mind. Remembering, um, Jewish Hebraist scholar Nehum Asarna says, remembering when it comes to God is not him recalling something, but focusing on the object of his remembrance with action. Focusing on the object of his remembrance with action. So with God, remembrance is action. So let me put it in terms we can understand a little bit more. There are two different ways you could remember your wife's birthday. One way you could remember your wife's birthday by saying, well, it's her birthday. I'm going to call ahead this week and make an arrangement at the favorite restaurant Make sure we have reservations. I'm going to buy flowers. I'm going to buy a card. I'm going to make sure we get babysitting if we need that and all that kind of stuff. And take her out. Happy birthday. Whatever. Great. That's, that's remembering her birthday. The other way of remembering her birthday is you get up in the morning. You have a notification on your phone. Today's your wife's birthday. Check. Cool. Check. I agree with that. You go about your day. Nothing. You lay down at night. 
She's kind of quiet. You say, honey, what's wrong? You say, and she says, you forgot it was my birthday. And you say, no, I remembered. You know, give me a break. I remembered it was your birthday. Right? That's, I think, how we typically think God it treats us. But that's not. He treats us the way the first husband did. He remembers by acting. That's, that's what remembers literally means in Hebrew. Like, it's remembering by acting. He sees. Right? And we use that kind of today. Like, when somebody's sharing their heart, we say like this, I see you. I see you. Like, that's, this is what's being communicated here. Um, knows is a very intimate word. We've talked about this in the past. That is the word typically for how a husband knows a wife or a wife knows a husband. That intimate, that intimate. Right? There's a depth of God's knowing. And here, really, let's just be honest, is where we really begin to enter into the deep mystery of God connecting with us in our distress. Uh, so here's what I mean. The God who says here, I, God knew. God knew. This is not a hypothetical knowing or a conceptual knowing of God on God's part. And not just because he knows everything. It is an experiential knowing on his part. I don't know what distress or darkness you are in right now. I know some of your story, some of your stories. I know some of the distress of the past. And some of it's bad. And some of it's dark. And some of it's hard. Here's what we have, people of Jesus. We have a God who has personally gone into a darkness and a distress that's darker and deeper than what we've experienced. That's not to minimize your experience. Don't do the comparison thing. This is the one who walks with us. And the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying, on that last night, just before he was to be arrested and crucified, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel to strengthen him so he could cry out with even more agony. And in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is crying out. This is earnest calling out. This wasn't Jesus play acting. This is Jesus in his human nature knowing the darkness that he was going into and desiring not to go in and saying, yet, yeah, Lord, I will go. I will go. It's, it's real. He's either praying so with such distress, he's sweating dr like drops of blood, or there's a uh, condition called hematohydrosis where you actually you can bleed through your, your forehead with enough stress. We don't know what the situation is. But he is facing distress. And he knows, he knows what it is to be betrayed by those who love him. He knows physical agony. And he knows something we don't even know. And we can't know if we're in him. This one says in Matthew 27, when he's on the cross, for the first time ever, he does not call his father, Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his human nature, he experiences the loss of the Father. 
Look, Jesus has gone into a deeper darkness and distress than we could ever go. So we could be confident that he will go into every other distress and darkness with us. That is the mystery of suffering in this, in this chapter. One who's been farther will go with us. Now in the next chapter, in the restoration of all things, Darkness and in distress is removed. But that is not until the next chapter. But what we get now is the presence and the person of Jesus through his spirit. And there, what we see there is their groaning and crying out was what we might call the experiential doorway to that reality. Now, did God know before that? Yes, Did he see before that? Yes. Did he hear before that? Yes. Were they aware of that? No. No. The experiential doorway is actually giving ourselves and crying out. Does that make us uncomfortable? Sure, it's fine. But that's what to see. That's what God invites us to. Exodus chapter 3. This is such a flyby. This is a central passage in the Bible. I'm now going to give it 90 seconds. Okay. Okay. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So he's, he's raised up Moses at this point. Yeah, all of Moses' life before that didn't even mention. I'm sorry. Like the central figure of the Old Testament. Okay, so he's pulled, called Moses out into the desert, burning bush. In verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the... Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, um, a couple things we see here. There is a, the, the land flowing with milk and honey is the promised land. And we know from the whole scope of Scripture that, as I said before, was a hyperlink to the whole earth in the next chapter. So part of Jesus being with us in our distress is an active reminder that this distress is a true sign that things are not as they should be. They are not as they should be, and they are not as they will be. Some of you are in pain right now, and that that is telling you the truth about the world that it's broken and in need of redemption, and it's pointing to the reality that there is a Redeemer who has already come and will come and restore all things. There is a certain future hope. And it's a personal hope right now. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, Uh, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, where they're out in the desert. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that's not him asking a question, it's him giving them his name. I am who I am, And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What kind of name is I am? (laughs) Good question. It's huge. It means everything. I am. I am self-existent. I am omnipresent. 
I am everything. I am all hope. I am all future. I am all redemption. I am. When it gets convoluted and translated in Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh, by the way. Yahweh. I am. And in your Bibles, when you see, usually see the word Lord capitalized, that's Yahweh. It's the name of the covenant. God is the first formal time God gives it to his people. I am. The fullness is going with you. I personally, I'm giving you my name and I'm going with you. The self-existent one is going with them. Here's why that's important for us. He was with them. Jesus steps into this earth. He takes on flesh. He goes into this deepest darkness. He faces the cross. He's crucified. Three days later, he breaks the power of death and is resurrected. Forty days later, he ascends to the throne. And then ten days after that, he sends his spirit into his people. And at that point, the Holy Spirit begins to be called the Spirit of Christ. So the one who indwells you, people of God, is this same one who was, say, who was giving his name to the people in the wilderness, the I am. And he wants to be known that way. I'll show you why. But first, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I am. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. I want you to know me as I am. I am the one who is present with you, the one who goes with you into distress because I've gone into a greater distress for you. I am, I am, I am. What does that mean? Okay. Jesus. So good. John 8. The Pharisees are asking Jesus, who are you? And he says this. Before Abraham was, I am. The very next verse, they pick up stones to kill him because they know what he was saying. He was claiming to be this one right here in Exodus 3. He knew who he was. The reason your Bibles say Lord, L-O-R-D, instead of Yahweh, is it grew in Jewish history that it was such a holy name, it could not be even said out loud. And Jesus comes and said, not only am I going to say it out loud, I am, I am. And they want to kill him. And just for good measure, he's like, if you didn't get it, let me repeat it. We saw this, John 15, our last sermon. I am the true vine. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the gate. John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, and you will live even if you die. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And in John 6, I am the bread of life. If you eat of this bread, you will not hunger. I am. I want you to remember my name forever, through every generation, is what it says in Exodus 3. How would we do that? Here's part of the way. Every week we come to the communion table, and don't you know what Jesus said in Luke 22, which is Taylor's going to lead us through this in a second, when he gives us what we celebrate in communion in the Last Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. 
as I have done all these things in covenant remembrance of you. And I promise to be with you. I know it's hard. I know in distress you have an experiential absence of me, but I'm not gone. I'm here. Call out to me. Call out to me, and you will find me. It might be messy. It's not. It's going to be messy, but I will be present. I'm committed to remembering you in activity. Come and understand and come and enjoy. I've gone into a deeper darkness. Now I'll go into every darkness with you. Let's pray, and we'll come to the table. Lord Jesus, you, you are good. You are better than we think you are. You are better than we can imagine, but we'd ask that you expand our imagination so we may see you a little more clearly. Enjoy you a little more fully. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Roger. Um, as Roger has been arguing, that's what a sermon is, uh, truly, to, to some degree, uh, his main point that the Lord meets his people in their distress with his rescuing presence. I don't know about you, but I've been encouraged by this. But I've also been asking the question how is it that we are fueled to keep believing that? How is it that we're actually empowered and energized to keep holding on and believing that the Lord is with me in my distress? Well, there's a number of ways in which the Lord does feed our souls and energizes, but one of the main ways he does that is by his body, the people together corporately going to the table, what we call communion, and partaking, taking to ourselves the bread representing his body given for us and making us his body, and his blood in the wine, his blood shed for us to forgive us of our sins and make us children. So I don't know where everyone is in this room. Maybe you are wrestling with distress. Maybe you're wrestling to believe that he is with you in your distress with his presence. Or as Roger talked about, maybe experiencing an apparent uh, distance from the Lord. The answer is to come to the table, to rest in Jesus and receive him alone for salvation. This is the way in which we are energized and empowered to keep holding on, to keep believing, to keep receiving and resting in Jesus alone. And it's something we act. We remember by doing. And so as, I, as we often say here in the New City community, this is a, a table, a meal for Christians where we are going to feast with Jesus and, and be nourished by Jesus.